Well, good morning. Um, thank you for coming today to our worship service here at Weston Baptist Church. If you're a guest with us, uh, we're so happy to have you. Uh, we hope that today is both encouraging and enriching for you. Uh, my name is Parks Edwards. I'm a member here, and I'm filling in today for Marty Price, who's our pastor, uh, who's on a well-deserved vacation. C.S. Lewis was arguably one of the most influential writers of the 20th century, and many people are familiar with him. He wrote many works, uh, both fiction and nonfiction. One of his most famous and enduring works is Mere Christianity. And in this work, he is speaking about God's activity in the Christian's life to change us from who we were before we knew God to uh, be different people, to be those who honor God and glorify him with our lives. So I want to read this quote where he uses the image of uh, us as a house uh, and God working to sort of remodel and re, uh, rebuild this house as sort of an image to help us think about this idea. So listen to what he says. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. God's grace is not just a one-time event in our lives where we have an experience and where we have an emotional experience and we come to know God and then we start doing religious things. God's grace is an ongoing activity in every Christian's life where he does just this very thing. He works to sanctify us and change us and make us more like himself. And that's what Lewis is getting at with this image here. God loves us too much to leave us the same as we were before we came to know him. And in our passage today, if you want to turn there, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul is going to make this very same point when he speaks about the grace of God as a living and active reality in our lives. So turn with me there and read along. Titus 2, 11 through 14, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession eager to do good works. God's grace is a living and active reality. First thing we see here is that Paul teaches that the grace of God has appeared. It's been revealed, in other words. Uh, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. 
Um, it's, in, it's important to see that we have two uh, appearings in this passage. Paul says first in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. And in verse 13, he says the glory of God has appeared. So let's just look at those two things. What does Paul mean when he says the grace of God has appeared? Well, if we think about how Paul speaks of the grace of God elsewhere uh, in the New Testament, and especially in the book of Titus, we see that Paul always, he, he never talks about the grace of God disassociated from the work of Jesus Christ. When Paul speaks about the grace of God, he is always linking this to Jesus Christ and what he's done. Look at verse 7 in chapter 3. Paul's been speaking about the kindness of God, our Savior, how God's love has been revealed. And then in verse 7, he says, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. So we're justified by the grace of God. Of course, we just read in verse 14 of chapter 2 that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us, to cleanse us, and to make us a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. In verse 4 of chapter 3, Paul speaks of the kindness of God our Savior and that his love for mankind has appeared and that we're saved, not by works of righteousness that we've done, but according to his mercy. So all over this book, Paul links the appearing of the grace of God to Jesus. We see this especially in other places in the New Testament. And one place is 1 John 4, 9 through 10. It says very specifically, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's grace has appeared in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He's the one who's taken the initiative to seek us out and to reveal our need for him and to make a way for us to be justified and made right before him. What about the appearing of the glory of God? If we look in verse 13, how does that connect with this idea of the grace of God? Well, if we look at verse 13, Paul says, uh, while we wait for the blessed hope, and he says the appearing of the glory of who? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Paul, Paul is stating that at a, at a future time, Jesus Christ will return a second time to, to this earth. And when he does so, it will be uh, a, a very powerful and uh, impactful event. Jesus himself, when he was on trial before the Jewish religious leaders, when he was asked about who he was, his identity, here's what he said. He said, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So here we have this idea again. Jesus will return one day in power and great glory. And so what do these two appearings mean for us now? Well, it's important to understand that the first time Jesus came in his incarnation, which is what we just celebrated at Christmas, um, he taught repentance from sin. The, The first words of his earthly ministry were, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was bringing in 
a new reality. And he was calling people to turn away from living for themselves and to turn away from living for the things of this world and to follow after him, to see that his way is the way of life. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He said that he came to seek and to save the lost. And he didn't conform to what many thought the Messiah would be. Even John the Baptist sent some of his disciples to Jesus saying, should we expect another? Some people had the idea that the Messiah was supposed to be some mighty political figure who would overthrow Rome. That's not who Jesus was the first time that he came. At his second coming, however, he will come in power and great glory. He will come to establish his kingdom and he will come to make everything right. And this will entail him bringing his people to be with him for eternity. It will also entail him bringing judgment upon the evil of this world. And two texts that speak of this, Hebrews 9.28 says, So also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. He will bring salvation to those who are waiting for him when he comes again. A sobering passage from 2 Thessalonians also speaks to the judgment that Jesus will bring upon the evil of this world. And here's what it says. It says, this will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. So there's two different realities that the second coming of Jesus brings. It brings hope and salvation to those who know him and are waiting for him. And when he makes everything right, this entails the judgment of evil. Now, I just want to stop for a moment because many modern people bristle at that idea of the wrath of God, that God would bring judgment upon people. And you read a text like this, and a lot of people just wish this wasn't in the Bible. And I can be empathetic with that some, but I want to help you see that everyone in certain ways already understands the need for the wrath of God. So anytime people complain about evil and suffering in the world, some people say this is evidence against the existence of God. And it's essentially a call to say, why doesn't God deal with the evil in the world? We look around. So where is he? Why hasn't he done something? Well, the second coming of Jesus is when he promises to deal with all evil once and for all, where everything will be made right. So God has promised to deal with evil. Anytime people look around in the world, they see something that's wrong, and they get involved in social activism of some kind. What are they doing? They're recognizing that to them there's something wrong in the world, and they want to do something to change it and to make it right. Anytime that you point to someone else and you say, well, that person is a hypocrite. Or anytime you're aware that you fail to live up to your own moral standards. What, what are all these things? It's a recognition that the world is not as it should be and that people commit evil, even ourselves. So the problem then is not that 
God judges evil or that there is such a thing as the wrath of God. The problem is that we don't think we're evil. And this is what the gospel tells us. The cross of Jesus Christ, when we look at it, is an offense to human pride because it tells us we are not as good as we think we are. When Jesus comes back, the standard is not how much better that you think you are or that I think I am than someone else. The standard is perfection. And this all comes straight from the teaching of Jesus himself. So when we think about the appearing of the grace of God when Jesus came the first time, we think about the appearing of the glory of God when he returns, we're reminded that we're living in between these two appearings and it matters how we live now. So the Christian faith is a historical religion. It's rooted in the person of Jesus in these two events of history. God became a man in history. 2,000 years ago. And one day Jesus will return to usher in the full reality of his kingdom. So have you embraced the grace of God in Jesus today? How much does the return of Jesus and his grace occupy your focus? Sometimes people wonder, what does this message about Jesus have to do with life right now? Sometimes people think, well, this is just all about going to heaven when you die. And that's not the case at all, as we'll see as we get into uh, the next part of our passage here. When we see that the grace of God has not only been revealed, but the grace of God sets his people apart from the world. Look at verse 12. It says that the grace of God is instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. So we see that the grace of God is instructing us. What does that mean? Well, the idea here is more like a continuous activity of training in our lives. If you think about people who want to go into some special branch of the military, well, you can't just be a civilian and jump straight into performing the duties of a special forces soldier. You're not ready for that. So people have to go through intense training to get to that point where they are fit to accomplish the goals that the requirements of a special forces soldier uh, demand. And in a similar way, when God works in our lives by his grace, He doesn't just leave us the same way that we were before we came to know him. He works to change us and to make us more like himself. So the grace of God instructs us. What does it instruct us to do? Well, there's a negative and a positive here. First, it instructs us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts. The word for godlessness here is the same word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 1. And if you're familiar with Romans chapter 1, This is where Paul is talking about how people who see the revelation of God in the world that he's made, instead of recognizing who God is and worshiping him, they turn from worshiping him to worship themselves and the things of the world. So it's essentially, it's exchanging the glory of God for lesser things, devoting yourself to lesser things. So at the very least here, Paul is saying, If you're a Christian and you've come to know God, you reject that way of life. You're not living for yourself anymore. 
You're not living for the desires and the priorities and the passions of a world that is opposed to God. Your life looks different, and God's grace trains us in how to live lives that honor him. He says here that God's grace brings salvation. That means that we are brought out of the domain of darkness into God's kingdom. It means that we are adopted into his family. We become different people. We're bought with a price and we belong to him. So the grace of God does not only instruct us to deny something, it instructs us to pursue and embrace a way of life. And that's what he means here when he says, it's not just denying godlessness and worldly lusts, it is living in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. And the sense here, generally, is just that however we relate to God and to other people and even to ourselves, we should display Christian character. We should be living lives that honor and glorify God no matter who we are uh, related to. So it's a general sense that if you are a Christian and you have come to know Jesus, your life should look different. And this is why when people claim to be Christians and people who aren't Christians see them acting in ways that even they recognize aren't consistent with a profession of faith, they say, well, that person's a hypocrite. So it's a recognition that if you claim the name of Christ, your life should look different. And God's grace is what makes the difference in our lives to accomplish that. So God's grace instructs us to deny godlessness and worldly lust, to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way. Some people may hear this and think, well, that just sounds like a list of do's and don'ts. It sounds like moralism. It sounds like, well, yeah, you just got to be a good Christian and do all the right things. And if that's where you're at this morning, then you fundamentally misunderstood the grace of God. This is so important. When properly understood, God's grace is the fuel of a changed life. The grace of God should cause you to see him as better than anything this world can offer. Just like that song that we sang. Think about Moses. The author of Hebrews says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. Do you notice that? The fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses understood things of this world, living for those, it's fleeting. Maybe fun for a time, but it's ultimately not life-giving. And Jesus Christ is the reward. He is better. Peter talks about how Christians are to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. So the things of this world, when we experience temptation as Christians to go back to our old life, remember that these are things that are self-destructive. These are things that are not life-giving. These are things that wage war against your soul. Another way to think about this, there's a difference between legalism and the gospel. As one commentator put it, legalism says, you should not do this. The gospel says, you need not do this because God is always bigger and better than sin. Sin is always making promises and the gospel exposes those promises as false promises 
and points to God who is bigger and better than anything sin offers. That's good news. You realize that all pursuit of sin is really a pursuit for uh, hope, meaning, satisfaction. It's trying to take something and fill the void that only God himself can fill. And what God's grace trains us to recognize is that sin is an illusion. The promise that that can give you life, that living apart from God is life, that's an illusion. And God's grace turns on the light bulb, opens your eyes so that you recognize that that's completely false and you see him for who he is, that he's better, he's bigger, he is the one who is life-giving. Just like Psalm 16 says, you reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the difference that the grace of God makes. So the next time that you experience a temptation to sin, and sin looks good, sin looks better to you than God, remember these truths. See through the illusion. God's grace is what will help us to do that. God's grace has been revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God's grace sets his people apart from the world. The grace of God supplies and sustains our hope. Look with me at verse 13. Paul says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is hope? Hope is just, in general, it's an optimistic expectation that things will be better than they currently are. Sometimes hope can be misplaced. Sometimes hope can be wishful thinking, not really grounded in anything real or true. But Paul is saying here, the hope that we have as Christians is not like that at all. The hope that we have as Christians, again, like the talk about the grace of God, it's always grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. The Christian hope is firm and secure and sure, and it will be fulfilled. Just like we sang, no one can pluck me out of his hand. Paul says, again, that this this hope is something that should uh, guide our life It should affect the way we live in this period between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And this life, it gets hard. In many ways, the Christian life, it's harder to live as a Christian in this world than it is just to go with the flow. And Jesus said it would be. But when we have the hope of Christ, when we recognize that he's at work in our lives now, to sustain us, to strengthen us, and to make us more like himself. When we remember that he's coming back one day to make everything right, and that we get to be with him for eternity, this sustains us through the difficulties and the trials of this life. As one commentator put it, grace does not simply prepare us for the future age by saving us from God's judgment. It's not just about going to heaven. Grace also shapes our lives now in the present. The gospel is good news for the last day, certainly, but it is also good news for the next day. So don't miss that. Years ago, I was into road biking, and I was a bit of a novice, and so there were things about this that I was not familiar with and I didn't expect. And one Saturday morning, I went for about a 30-mile ride with one of my friends from college. And I wasn't hungry when I woke up that morning, so I didn't eat anything. I didn't think it was a big deal. Um, 
And I felt pretty good for the first 15 or 20 miles. And right somewhere around that point, my legs completely gave out. And I realized that I was not going to be able to make it to the end of this ride. Every time that we would go up uh, even a slight incline, uh, I, I really, really struggled. And the deceptive thing about road biking, if you've never done it, is that in some ways how much energy your body is burning, uh, it, it can be a bit deceptive because it doesn't feel like you're working that hard. Um, but if you're not prepared, it can hit you out of nowhere and you realize you don't have enough fuel to make it to the end. So thankfully, in that situation, my friend did have some food that helped me make it to the end. But I learned a powerful lesson that day. I was not prepared for that journey. I did not have uh, food to sustain me. And in the same way, if you're a Christian in this life, you need the hope and the grace of Jesus to sustain you because there are times that are challenging and difficult. And if you're not depending on him, you're not going to be able to make it through those times. So be encouraged today. Be reminded of the hope that you have in Jesus, not only when you first came to know him and how he changed your life then, but be encouraged that he's working in your life now. Be encouraged that there is a day coming when our faith will be sight and we will be with him for eternity. The grace of God has been revealed in Jesus. The grace of God sets his people apart from the world. The grace of God supplies and sustains our hope. And the last point here is that the grace of God motivates good works. Look at verse 14. Paul says, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Jesus gave himself for us. This means in our place, on our behalf. We deserved the wrath of God for our sins. We've committed crimes against God. We stand condemned before God in and of ourselves, but Jesus stepped in to make a way. He took upon himself that condemnation and that wrath that we rightly deserve for our sins against God. We just sang about it, and in Christ alone, the wrath of God was satisfied in him. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5. He says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? Jesus died for us so that we might escape the wrath to come. He accomplished three things. He redeems us from all lawlessness. What does that mean? It means that he's bought us back from our slavery to sin. We were once enslaved to sin. Jesus has set us free. And he's redeemed us from all lawlessness. This means all your sin, past, present, and future. His redemption is complete. It's not partial. He is cleansed for himself. So his blood washes us clean from our sins. We can't make ourselves clean on our own, but Jesus' blood accomplishes this. And finally, it says that he cleansed for himself a people for his own possession. Jesus has purchased us with his blood. 
Elsewhere, Paul talks about how we're to honor God with our lives because we've been bought with a price. So Jesus' work accomplishes all these things. And this is what provides the fuel for us to carry out the commands to deny our former way of life, to deny a godless way of life, and to embrace and pursue a godly life that honors him. So we're walking in newness of life. And what, what good works is Paul talking about? Well, Paul is essentially talking about the manifestation of Christian character in our lives. We didn't read the first part of chapter 2, but Paul is basically telling Titus, who he wrote this letter to. Titus was a young pastor uh, in a church on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. And so Titus, really the whole book, is Paul encouraging and instructing Titus in how to uh, establish the church there and strengthen the Christians uh, on the island of Crete. In the first part of chapter 2, he basically said, Titus, teach these things to all the people in your church, whether they are older or younger. Teach them to display Christian character. Teach them to live self-controlled lives. Teach them to be good examples for those who are younger. And the significance is that Paul starts here. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. He grounds all his commands, all these moral commands about the Christian life in the grace of God. So the good works that we get to participate in flow out of our response to what Jesus has done for us. Elsewhere, Paul talks about what it means to walk by the Spirit uh, so that we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Many of you are probably familiar with the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are the good works. Those are the fruits in our lives of knowing Jesus and walking with him that should affect how we relate to other people. It should affect how we work at our jobs. It should affect how we treat our family. It should affect um, just the whole uh, realm of our lives. Knowing Jesus changes us. Notice also in verse 8 of chapter 3, Uh, Paul's just spent time talking about the kindness of God and his love for mankind. And in verse 8, he says, I want you, that is Titus, to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. So when people come to know God, their lives will display the fruit of this relationship with Jesus. By no means means that Christians will live a perfect life, but it means that we're growing to look more like Jesus in every sphere of our lives. And so Paul's saying, when the grace of God gets a hold of you, you are motivated to live a life that honors him. You want to please him. You want to respond in gratitude to what he has done for you. Think of it on a much smaller level. When people have goals in life, say somebody wants to get into medical school and they want to become a doctor, what does somebody have to do when they make a goal like that? Well, you have to do a number of things. You have to have a plan. You have to uh, study hard in school so that you can get good grades. Why? So you can get into a good medical school. Once you're in medical school, you have to study hard there too. And you have to work at it. Why? So that you can graduate and so that you can get a job. And of course, once you graduate, you have to find the job. And once you have the job, you have to work hard there. 
So what motivates someone who has that goal when the going gets really tough? When they get really discouraged, what do they think about? Well, they think about the reward of achieving the goal. They remember what this journey has been all about. That's what sustains them in the difficult times, reminds them of why they're doing what they're doing. It frames their whole perspective so that they are grounded in something that is more sturdy than their emotions day to day. So if that's the case on very small-scale goals, you know, that we have in life, how much more so should the grace of God and what Jesus has done for us motivate us to live lives that honor him and glorify him? And sometimes I think we can forget that. The grace of God can become sort of old news to us. We get used to hearing about it week after week. And it can lose its power in our lives if we aren't uh, meditating on it the way that we need to be, if we're not praying about it and asking for God's help to remember who we were before we came to know him and who we are now. That makes all the difference in the world. So Paul says repeatedly in the book of Titus that a knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. A knowledge of the truth in what Jesus has done leads to good works in our lives. So people are in different seasons of life. So consider what good works does God have for you to do in this season of your life as a Christian? Think about how he has uniquely made you and how he has uniquely gifted you to serve him and to make a difference to advance his kingdom in the world. God has gifted all of his people in various ways and the purpose of those gifts is so that the, the church, the body of Christ might be built up and so the world may be reached for him. So consider this morning, what good works does God have for you to do? You have a part to play. Also consider, are you cultivating your walk with God today? Focusing on all that he's done for you. It can be easy. We just got through the Christmas season. That can be a very busy time. And we can uh, be involved in a lot of church services and things like that um, and kind of talk about Jesus. But if we're not careful, it can be a very external thing, you know, and we don't really take the time to think about what God has done for us and the difference that he's made in our lives. So are you cultivating your walk with God today? And also, just think about your, your overall attitude toward the grace of God in your life. For you, has the grace of God been more of this past event? Oh, I said a prayer when I was younger. Um, has it been more lip service, something you can talk about, but something that doesn't really uh, impact you um, the way that it should? Just consider where you're at with the grace of God this morning. The grace of God has been revealed. It's appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, his first coming. The grace of God sets his people apart from the world. He takes us out of darkness into his kingdom and sets us apart so that we can know him and live for him. The grace of God supplies and sustains our hope. Where is your hope today? Is it grounded in Jesus? Are you letting his reality inform the way you think about your life today? And the grace of God motivates good, good works. When you know Jesus, he makes a difference in your life. 
and he changes you so that you want to live for him, advance his kingdom in the world, tell other people about him. So if you're a Christian this morning, be reminded and encouraged that God, in his grace, he's active in your life. He's working to change you, to strengthen you as you depend upon him. If you're in a difficult season right now, remember his grace to you, that he's not left you alone, that he knows all about your situation and that he's working even through that to change you to look more like himself. And if you're a non-Christian today, consider the call to follow Jesus. The first words out of his mouth for his earthly ministry were repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's bringing in a new reality. He calls people to turn from a life of living for themselves and a life from living for the things of this world and to follow him, to lay down your life, to make him your Lord. So consider this this morning. Consider the abundant life that's found in Jesus and how he's better than anything that this world can offer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reality of the hope that we have in Jesus. Thank you that this is not wishful thinking, that it's not something that is just nice to say and talk about, but something that is not actually true. But your grace is an active reality in the life of your people to enable us to live lives that glorify you so that we might be lights in a dark world so that others might come to know you. Thank you that one day, Jesus, you will return, you will make everything right, and you will bring your people to be with you for eternity. Help us today to remember who you are, to remember your love and your kindness to us who do not deserve to know you, and yet you have made a way for us to be forgiven. In your name we pray, amen.